Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The time we have to work with is shorter. The number of channels has proliferated and become mathematically harder. The ability to find people has become easier. The time that we have to grab their attention and entertain them has shortened. The tenure of our clients is halved. And often the money is less as well. The budgets are smaller. So it is a good Rubik's Cube kind of problem to be in advertising. Right in the throes of the Me Too movement and the advertising business's existential crisis, Kristen Cavallo got the call up to become the first female CEO of a decorated, half-century-old ad agency. Difficult roads to and from this milestone. Stay tuned. This week's episode is made possible by Evo Advisors offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based for those who have more than a 401k to manage. Visit evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining me in studio, such a pleasure, Kristen Cavallo, CEO of the Martin Agency, the award-winning ad agency famous for its Geico, Oreos, gosh, all over the place work. She's a 25-year veteran of the advertising industry, originally in sales. She got her MBA. She's been on all seven continents with her kids, most recently Antarctica. Kristen has led teams that have won Ken Lyons and Emmy and multiple Effies, including the grand Effie for American Greetings World Toughest Job campaign. How are you? I am good. Thank you. What Thanks. the Effie? Did I just read that correctly? <laughs> What's an Effie? What the Effie? Oh, what I don't know. the Effie? Like... You did. You read that correctly. It's uh, the most effective work in the industry. Excellent. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, I have so many questions. There's so much to pack into an episode. You're so kind to come on kind of at, at split notice. Um, hugely, hugely, hugely in the news right now is what happened with uh, Nike mm. and Colin Kaepernick. And it's something that you would not imagine a brand to take such a polarizing position when you have, you know, it antipodal to the person in the White House who's going up against the NFL, the NFL season starting and whatnot, and then they come out and say, bam, we're backing him. What was your initial impression? I loved it. Uh, I, I suspect most people in advertising loved it. But I think that for the one, well, probably for the first time, Nike went beyond being the champion of the athlete and backed an athlete's cause, which I think is interesting. More importantly, I think that they laddered up from a belief to a conviction in their own brand. So by that, I mean, let me actually let me explain it with another brand, CVS. CVS for many people was a drugstore, but they decided to be thought of as a health and wellness company. They chose to eliminate cigarettes, to eliminate foods with trans fats, to eliminate SPF under 30 because those things were inherently unhealthy. And if they're going to be a company for health and wellness, then they should lean into that. 
it was an example of leadership. Had they done focus groups, and perhaps they did in polling, I'm sure they would have found that they had customers that would not have advocated for them to take a move like that. But they did it because it was more than a belief as a conviction on uh, of the company that they are a company for health and wellness and the health and wellness of their of their customers. I think Nike just did the same thing. I think they have been long known for being a champion for the athlete and all of us. The difference now is I think they have decided to say that they have a conviction that athletics supersedes race, gender, um, whether you're whether you're able-bodied or, or, or handicapped, um, whether you are, um, it, it transcends everything. It's the only thing in their mind that matters. And because of that, it allowed them to do a campaign that put all these people on equal stage. And to lead with the Collins story, I think, was a, a bold leadership move, and I applaud them for it. You know, and, and the stats initially that came out that said after an initial dip immediately after the news broke, this is concurrent with the beginning of the NFL season, sales actually grew 31 percent from the Sunday of Labor Day weekend through, uh, you know, the, the following Tuesday. Um, they, you, you've, I'm sure you've read all the stuff about the earned media that they got in doing it. I mean, you might have taken a three, four billion dollar hit uh, with with maybe certain community colleges and other schools killing Nike accounts, but then the press that they got out of it, the sheer amount of it was just staggering. Everybody was talking about it. And the truth is the day of the stock hit, most stocks went down. Google went down. Facebook went down. Puma, Adidas. And those were not tied to this campaign. I think many brands went down that day. So I think to draw that as as a total and complete correlation would be false. But I think they are um, they are in it for the long haul, and they've already seen numbers bounce back, as you stated. And they they are on the right side of history on this. But importantly, they're on the right side of their brand beliefs. You know, and you're coming from a position of strength if you're Nike. That cuts both ways because you have a lot to lose. This company's market capitalization is $130 billion. It is mm. a Dow component. It is the envy of all apparel makers for its margins, its global recognition, um, you know, thought influence, that the, the, the stable of people that they have under them, superstars across basketball, football, tennis, uh, international people. Um, just to give you an idea, in December of 1980, this was a 15-cent stock. Hmm. It's now at $80 a share. And um, when I say it cuts both ways, they had a tremendous amount to lose. If suddenly the president of the United States with his 55 million Twitter followers comes out and says it's embarrassing what you did and you have military people cutting out their swoosh logos and arguing over this, it was definitely gutsy. It was gutsy. Phil Knight from Nike, though, famously said being number one means thinking and acting like number two. And I think what Nike has done brilliantly is never rest on their laurels. They've never taken their leadership for granted. And in fact, in this case, I think they're using their leadership and they're putting their muscle and their backing behind causes that are important. You've seen that with brands like Patagonia, not just trying not to harm the environment in the production of the products they make, but actually standing up and defending it when it when the when the environment needed defending, coming up with the president stole your land or pulling out of trade shows. Um, you're seeing it with CVS, not just standing for, you know, 
health and wellness, but actually removing things off the shelf even when people aren't asking. It ties to research that shows that consumers today want their brands to stand for things that are outside the product that they make. More than 70% of consumers want to buy from companies that have a point of view on a controversial subject. That's even more true of younger millennial and Gen X, Gen Y rather. Um, 44% of employees want to work for a CEO that stands, that has a point of view on something outside of what they make. What you stand for and your convictions are a reason to purchase and a reason to be employed today. And and most people have stated that next year they're going to look to brands and religion to help them determine how they feel about things. They're not looking to their federal government mm. for how they should feel. So I think those brands are doing it because it's not only the right thing to do for branding, but it is also, I think, a statement of leadership. You typically don't see it from big incumbent companies. There's that innovator's dilemma. I don't want to get into Microsoft necessarily. Nobody's carrying a Microsoft smartphone right now. Mm. Apple had a lot to gain, not a lot to lose when it had its back up against the wall. Now everybody's carrying an iPhone. And I wonder kind of to what extent this can be implemented in an era where you know from clients, uh, both existing and, and past and prospective clients, that there's this huge fear that millennials especially don't necessarily have brand loyalty. You can go on Amazon and buy a, a $17 pair of pants without a label on it. Um, that there's this one startup, I don't know, is it called Brandless or something that's getting venture capital financing because you're stripping away all the goodwill and all the attendant SGNA and marketing that goes to firms like yourself to just give them the raw product, like cut out the BS. And it's a, it's a Trader Joe's type dynamic. Is that something you're seeing? Yeah, you've really hit on an interesting point. I think there's also research now that shows there's not necessarily a correlation between loyalty and sales. So, which is an interesting thing, right? Because most clients put a metric of loyalty in as a metric of success or a goal, but there's not a clear correlation that the A, people are loyal to any one brand. I think they're loyal to subsets. They're loyal to brands. Uh, um, so, for example, with you might be loyal to Tylenol, Advil, or Bear. Um, versus private label or something you've never heard of. But you're, it's rare today that you're loyal to one thing and one thing only. You're often loyal to a subset of things. And there's even more research to show that the correlation between loyalty and sales is not as strong as one would think. So it's a little bit of a false goal to build in loyalty as a metric of success. It's more important to build in relevance as a metric of success. It's more important today to be relevant. And that's what Nike did brilliantly. You're a parent of two children, and this is coming out of left field, but I've always wanted to ask somebody, where did LaCroix water come out of? <laughs> Wasn't that an anachronistic brand kind of with cheesy 90s coloring and everything? And suddenly I turn around three years ago and the, the millennial parents of um, you know, some of the uh, students at my kids' preschool are like, oh, we love it. you got to try the grapefruit, the pamplemousse, <laughs> the coconut. How does that happen? It's almost a Malcolm Gladwellian tipping point. It thing. is. It's the, so fun, Coke though, isn't it? And then Coke is pulling its hair out. And they then... have pajamas, they're Pinterest. They're such a fan favorite, and that's what makes them How so lovable. How does something lovable. like that happen? I always wanted to ask a branding guru that they didn't necessarily— <laughs> You know, didn't... I'd have to study that one. I don't actually know, but I do know I am a fan favorite. Um, uh I, I, my gut is it's engineered. It's not happenstance. I'm sure they did a lot of very smart things along the way. Was to make there sure one that... millennial influencer who got kind of got atop a roof know. and is like, this stuff is amazing. I like, feel bad that I actually around. don't even know. 
I'll have to look that up. And it just suddenly showed up. And I'm thinking, gosh, how much has Coke and Pepsi and Dr. Pepper 7-Up, how much have they spent on shelf space and Hmm. Goodwill and everything to completely whiff on this? And now every grocery store chain wants to make its own naturally flavored sparkling water. And, you know, they can't stock this stuff fast enough. Right. You're right. And it just happens in this – I I suppose Harvard Business School or somebody will study it as a case study for millennial behavior. But it is vexingly difficult (laughs) when a company comes to you, I don't know, like a Land O'Lakes or someone that says, can you tell us how to market to millennials without marketing to millennials? They don't want to be sold to. What is there to that? It's awesome, isn't it? Actually, we just did something really amazing with Land O'Lakes. With, uh, we actually did two things. We did a farm bowl a few months ago where we put farmers and NFL football players together and had them do almost like an American Ninja Warrior event. They had to put tires on John Deere tractors and use drones <laughs> wow. to fly through and drop seeds and load you know, hay and assorted other things. And then is that the North recently, Dakota in you? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> and then recently we did a campaign called SHE-IO, which was oh. with Maggie Rose, um, country singer, and Liz Rose, a Grammy award-winning writer, where we rewrote the lyrics to Old MacDonald to recruit more female farmers. Both of those were a belief that, or an understanding, a conviction on the part of Land O'Lakes that it's a co-op. It is built of a, of a group of dairy farmers that have come together because they know that doing things together is better than doing them individually. And that seems like a very foreign thought right now in our world, but it's also an awesome thought in our in our world and time today. And they're they're doing a lot of interesting things that are not typical advertising for their category, and they are reaping the benefit of that. They were most recently in Fast Company. They were in Wired. I mean, they're, they've been in great magazines of, uh, that you wouldn't normally expect to see Land Lakes, where in Fast Company in particular, they were credited with intersecting pop culture in an unexpected way, but in a way that felt very true to their brand and their beliefs that made it all the more sweet. And something like that translates into more sales of vegetable oil-based That's pets. That's the hope. That research does say that the most talked about brands outperform their competitive set by two and a half times in terms of speed. So the most talked about brands grow faster. So it's a velocity game. Uh, you want to be relevant. And the consumer is, in fact, not the end recipient of the, the messaging that we do. They are the media channel. That's the big shift is you have to develop content that either gets a consumer to share or to talk about your brand. And to the truth is even controversial topics benefit your brand from a sales perspective to a point. But the you know many times obviously you want to get positive conversation going. But any conversation is usually good conversation when it comes to sales. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Kristen Cavallo. She is CEO of the Martin Agency, the ad shop in Richmond, Virginia, famous for its Geico, Oreos, Land O'Lakes. Gosh, you name it. What what other? UPS. UPS. Donate Life. Virginia's for Lovers. Virginia's for Lovers. And how old is the agency? 53 years. And you've been at it in the industry for about 25 years. And I'd like to get to some biographical information on, on your part. Take me back to um, the baptism by fire when you first became a mother and had to find your bearings, kind of a mm. earthquake, cataclysmic event and having to pull <laughs> yourself up and, and find a way out. Yeah. Um, so I became a mom in 1997 and um, I 
became a single parent around the same time. And um, it was not an easy time in the industry to get flex time, flex work. And I had planned on being a stay-at-home mom. But um, there was an agency that was willing to take a gamble on me and a, a boss in particular, Carolyn Clark. She's now a professor at Boston University. And um, she she took a real chance on me and um, allowed me to work from home two days a week and work from the office three days a week and work full time. And I've never forgotten that. She ended up telling me at that moment that it was a moment she was paying forward because 16 years before that, someone had done something similar from her for her. They not as she wasn't a single mother, but they made a bet on her at a tough time in her life. And so I've looked for moments in my career to try to do the same, but I've also looked for moments in my career where I could rewrite the rules. It taught me that just because something hadn't been done a lot or been done before doesn't mean it couldn't be done. And so when I came to Martin, soon after that, I actually worked from the office four days a week and home one day a week. Gradually then as my son got older, I worked five days a week and I was at Martin for close to 14 years and then got a call back from Mullen, an agency that I'd started out in Boston. But I didn't want to move. I wanted to stay in Richmond and uh, my son was entering high school. And it was, um, I'm an army brat. My parents always kind of locked and loaded whenever each kid got into high school. So we all started and graduated from the same school, which was a nice thing. When you moved often, it was a real luxury to be able to to start and complete your education in one spot. Um, and I wanted that for, for my son. And, um, and so went back to Mullen and we ended up coming up with a, uh, a deal where I would work five days a week or work full time rather, but only three days a week from the office. And so I would fly up on Tuesdays and fly home on Thursdays and work Monday from, and Friday from home. And I went back as chief strategy officer and then promoted to president and then North American chief growth officer, North American chief strategy officer, and then got brought back to Martin, um, where I happen to still live in Richmond. So um, my work-life balance is actually ironically worse now <laughs> because I work uh, from the office the majority of the time. I have two kids and um, one's ninth grade and one's a uh, senior in college. And we've, we've always kind of taken the philosophy of um, rewrite the rules if possible to be, allow you to be your best at what you can do. Your senior in college, that, that first year though at home, I mean, it's not an analogous situation at all. I was very fortunate with my wife to be able to plan uh, flex time and division of labor with, with our son when he arrived in 2010. He arrived early nevertheless, and it was a huge stress and trauma in my life. And I couldn't for the life of me focus on work and the ambition and the drive that I needed to get by, kind of to get through in, the, in, a, in a struggling industry right in the wake of the financial crisis. I am naturally curious how you mustered the energy, mm. kind of the, the the gumption to go on the offensive at a time of trauma. Um, I didn't feel like I had any other options, if I'm being totally honest. And I've always just been, I think I was raised to be um, a pragmatic problem solver. Failure was not an option. Um, and... Um, I would say I'm also not a martyr. I it it's almost irrelevant. I don't I never really describe myself as a single parent because that implies that you're alone and I don't feel alone. 
I have an army of people that help me. My kids have two grandfathers, two grandmothers, four aunts, four uncles, uh, everyone willing to help. My my daughter has a squad of friends, and all of the mothers are on constant text stream together, and we all help each other out. And my kids are also pretty self-sufficient. But um, so I, I don't really think of myself alone. I don't think of myself as a martyr, and I have no problem asking for help. But I do often think I want to be a good mom, and I want to be good at my job. And so I structure my life to try to do both those things well. So it was an awful lot of travel in the intervening years when you were going between Virginia and and Boston mm-hmm. several times a week. How did you discuss that with your children? How did you discuss that with your colleagues to, to know that there were boundaries and with your kids that, listen, you know I love you, you know I'm constantly available, but this is our reality? Yeah, it was a, it was a group team discussion within the family, and um, they were very supportive. And I think they are... I don't know. You'd have to interview them. But I would like to think that they're two of my biggest champions. And I'm definitely theirs. And what are your son's plans now? Ha! He interned for the summer at American Greetings. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a graphic design major. He would love to move to Colorado. If anyone from Colorado is listening, he would like a job as a graphic designer. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not that's not hint, hint, ski bum. <laughs> not one of those things. He's a boarder more than a skier, uh, but he loves the outdoors. And um, and so that would be one, probably his most immediate ambition. He, um, he, he works very hard. So I think he wants to have a life that he loves, but he also really likes what he does. Now, Kristen, now that you're at the Martin Agency and you were called back um, at the end of 2017, mm-hmm. the company – had a huge Me Too scandal with a former chief creative officer and people finally stepping forth and saying that they were victims of harassment and abuse and a culture of intimidation over several years. You got called very promptly. I mean, the parent company is the same as the one you worked for Correct. in Boston. And yeah. they said, this is this is your call up. I mean, you're, you're being swooped into a situation. They told you, we back you. You're going to roll up your sleeves and completely redo the culture. I mean, I what about, was that call like? I had about 24 hours notice. Uh, maybe less. Um, they were very supportive. Uh, but I, you're right. I did not walk in on day one with a 100-day plan or a 60-day plan or even a 30-day plan. My first thought was to secure current clients. If you know, um, uh, the the parent company had had taken steps to remove any alleged person. Um, before I got there. So none of that was really a weight on me or a decision factor for me. Those choices were made before I got there. Um, But my job was to make current clients feel secure, to make the staff feel confident that we were going to survive this. I did not try to act like things were going to be easy. In fact, I remember very specifically standing up and saying, I think this is going to be hard, but we can do hard things. There were a handful of clients that came forth and gave me great career advice. Geico and Oreo were two in particular. Most clients I have found have survived a crisis of their own. Maybe not me too. Maybe it was, you know, a food issue or a financial issue or a leadership issue. But very few companies are immune from difficult things. And they they all gave me very good advice. And importantly, they all said, we're here. Because we believe in your company and we believe in the teams that work on our business. And we did not lose a single client 
in that event. And that is really remarkable and I think uncharacteristic from what I can tell of other agencies that have lived through similar things in our mm. industry. And full credit goes to the team of people at that agency. They, they stayed and had nothing to do with me. They stayed because the people that have been working on their business have done so with a lot of creativity and strategy and earnestness for years. And they, the clients stood behind the work and the character of the agency. I think that was probably the hardest thing is that the agency has very good and differentiating character. And so this kind of attack on the culture of the company was hard to swallow and hard to understand in many ways. But we did not shirk from the opportunity or the necessity to change. Was there a honeymoon period where kind of, okay, you can separate cultural remediation versus get down to the brass tacks and... (laughs) We didn't even get into how struggling the broader industry is and questions about agency There was no honeymoon period. And in fact, on top of that, in this last eight months that I've been here, we've had 14 CMO or CEO changes within our clients, which oftentimes can trigger a review, an agency review. So um, literally, I get to the end of the week and um, I'm kind of mentally exhausted (laughs) because uh, it's hard to predict sometimes what's going to happen the next week. But I'm also completely energized. I feel like I am in a position for the first time in my career to create change, meaningful change. I appointed a female chief creative officer in Karen Costello. And one of the first things we did was eliminate the wage gap. And I don't think we've ever felt like we were in a position to do that before, but we could do that from an equality standpoint. And we just decided and did it. There was We didn't have to sell it into anybody because we are the final arbiters of those kinds of decisions. We've been able to make decisions on um, diversity hires and the kind of makeup of the executive leadership and the ambition of the company and the things that are going to be important. And interestingly, neither Karen nor I had ever even interviewed for our positions before becoming the CEO and CCO. So when I say that, I don't mean we didn't interview for these jobs. That's true. But we had never interviewed to be in these positions at any of the other companies we'd been in. So it also is just such a great reminder of the depth of talent that is in any company. But when you got that call from IPG, you were ready to take it. I mean, the army brat part of you, I don't know, you remember your father's lessons or something, just do it. Yes. You I can only premeditate. You can interview for these positions and, and retain so many headhunters. But where were you when you got that call? I was sitting at Mullen at the, my current that yeah, like, was my uh, current let employer. Let me take this call outside. <laughs> well, no, it's all owned by well, the, same the same holding company. company. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I have an irrational relationship with the Martin Agency. I had spent 14 years there, which is one of the longest commitments I had made from a work perspective ever. And I cared a lot about the agency. I also loved my job at Mullen, Mullen Lowe. I loved it. Um, and so it was not an easy Thing to leave because I was very happy where I was. I loved my clients. I loved the people. I had great um, ambition and opportunity there. But I also did believe that I was probably the most qualified person for this job. I think that I understood 
what made the agency special, having worked there. I was trained by Mike and John, who were in Mike many Hughes ways— Mike Hughes and John Adams, yeah, the— the former Famous. CEO and, right. and chief creative officer, who were in many ways a lot of the lifeblood and heart and soul of that company and, and the ethos of what made that place special. Um, and so there were people that when I walked back in on day one would look at me and think this is a person who cares about this company. And there was some credibility in that versus a foreign face. I had also spent valuable years away where I'd been able to learn how to do things differently. And that helped me as well. You're listening to Full Disclosure. I'm Robin Farzad here in downtown RVA with Kristen Cavallo, CEO of the Martin Agency, the award-winning advertising shop. You can catch this broadcast Saturday nights at 6 and then again Sunday night at 8 on NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News. Full Disclosure is always on demand on NPR One and at NPR.org and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. And for more information, including plans for live events, visit Full D Radio on both Twitter and Facebook. Kristen, the upshot is you are the first female CEO in the 50-plus year history of the Martin Agency. I mean, it took that long. It did. If I had told you back in 1997 that in the 2000s there'd be this highly polished, mm -hmm. hugely awarded series called Mad Men, would you believe me? I mean, the premise, the entire thing that the... The 1960s culture of kind of male chauvinistic dominated advertising agency life could have sustained something so memorable in the binging era? I would because I think TV has always been interesting. I it's it's also fascinating. Are you sick of, of getting asked about Don Draper, by the way, at every freaking cocktail party on every <laughs> flight? I have to know. I never get asked about Mad Men anymore. But um, no, I think what's been interesting is people thought the Internet was going to kill television. And in fact, they're more scripted TV shows than ever before, and they're better, and they're better acted than they've ever been. I think people thought the magazines were going to die, and yet we eagerly await Time magazine covers right now because they are so thought-provoking, and we share them, and we talk about them, and we um, post them, and we tweet them, and we love them. I think that we there are things to learn and love about the history of what we do. And Mad Men did that. It's, they're great stories. There are great stories about advertising. And the truth is advertising is one of these careers that affords you the ability to learn a little bit about a lot of subjects. And so if you tend to be someone who likes change or, or has a fear of boredom, I both, then advertising is a great career because you never really have time to get bored and you're always learning something new. And so... There was a lot to like about that show. I didn't always look at it from the perspective of male chauvinism. I looked at it from the perspective of great copywriting and insight and and the fun that was advertising. And you actually just walked into a trap that I didn't even know I, I was setting, but advertising, the golden age of content. I'm watching content that's decidedly advertising free. Yes. I'm binging it on Netflix or binging it on Amazon Prime or these other channels. You can argue that never has advertising writ large been as annoying as it is right That's now. That's so funny you say that. I All the ads we try to skip, and you guys kind of nod to it in the in the little, you know, Geico five-second unskippable, sure. unskippable stuff where I was like, oh, those guys, they're my friends <laughs> downtown. I'll watch it for their sake and everything. But my experience is like, look, I mean, I'm you know, if I'm watching Narcos or if I'm watching a miniseries, The Queen, 
that is bereft of advertising. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer the social compact. And as the DVR has really complicated things for you guys in that if I am watching something, I can skip through the ads. So it's ever harder for you to have that leverage with clients. It is. Advertising is not for the faint of heart, and it's not an easy career. I think the fallacy might be that because it's something largely enjoyable or fun and sometimes people think superfluous that it's an easy thing to do, but I think the challenges are very hard. I think the math behind it is very real. The interesting thing that you comment you made a minute ago is how annoying advertising is. For That's actually a generational answer. It's annoying for for some of us because we lived through a period of time when we didn't have the choice to opt out. If you look at younger folks today, 14, 15, it's not annoying because they've lived at a time when they've been able to essentially opt out their entire life. So they tend to opt in more, which is why you see them opting in to the Kardashians and things that are all about essentially marketing because they were never annoyed by it to begin with. But how does an agency of record, the entire concept, go into, suppose, okay, a a CMO departs at a major Fortune 500 company, and they say, we're going to do an agency review, and you're going to come in. The old CMO was talking the language of TV impressions, soap operas, Time Inc., which was kind of unceremoniously sold off to Meredith, glossy, some semblance of advertising. My impression is that all that has been kind of smashed to bits right now. Not only has kind of, uh, you know, Google and Facebook sucked all the air, all the life out of analog advertising and taken it to this um, this bizarre world of nickels and dimes online, uh, but, you, you know, individual shops don't lord over relationships with all these different players as much as they used to. It's not like you can farm a person out to Time Inc. or, you know, People and Style Weekly, a lot of this stuff is like in the, in the long tail tradition has been smashed into a million mm-hmm. pieces. Mm-hmm. You're right. It's um, it's interesting. The time we have to work with is shorter. The number of channels has proliferated and become mathematically harder. The ability to find people has become easier. The time that we have to grab their attention and entertain them has shortened. And the tenure of our clients is halved. And Jeez. often the money is less as well. They have the budgets are smaller. And so it is it is a good Rubik's Cube kind of problem to be in advertising. I would say it's a it's a it's a great career for problem solvers. Now how do you solve for the biggest question in the world is Google? or Facebook, or AdSense, or these things that, you know, you could you could comfortably tell a person what a full-page cream cheese ad in People mm. Magazine would have affected in 1995, but it's so vexingly difficult. What's my Instagram strategy? What's my presence on Twitter? Right. Earned versus bought. Um, how do you, as an ad shop that, you know, for better or for worse, 52 years going on, talk that language and seem credible in talking that language? We when have, there are all these tiny little influencers who are going around and making that pitch. The greatest thing about the Googles or the Apples of the world is they've conditioned the public to accept updates constantly. Hmm. And the truth is we need to be updating ourselves constantly. We need to live in permanent beta. 
We need to be constantly evolving, constantly changing, constantly testing things. And the best clients recognize that and uh, add an element of risk. So it might be that 60, 70 percent of their budget is placed in channels that are um, easily predictable and defined, but maybe 30 percent of their budget is placed in in channels or with brands or in types of executions that are harder to calculate the benefit. And then maybe the last 10% is pure R&D. And so I think we're seeing clients generate budgets that are that incorporate a level of risk and beta and testing in what they do. It may not always be testing, pre-testing to guarantee success. It might be real-world testing. But there is a sense of optimization that happens constantly. Has there been a, a real example in your mind in the digital era of an example where the outlay is minimal, but the multiplier effect has been so huge? I, you know, the ALS ice bucket challenge comes sure. to mind, and I'm sure it comes up a lot with clients. I think even the Nike campaign. I'm sure it wasn't a, a small budget to begin with, but I think the impact they got out of that first day was dramatically more than perhaps what they expected. Um, I, sure, there, there are lots of examples. I think CVS doesn't do it with a lot of advertising, but I think the, the risk they took in removing cigarettes and the benefit they got, they, they did lose smokers, but they gained more back on the other end, more volume, more revenue, and more consumers in the end. There are lots of examples like that. I think Patagonia is another one that has taken risk and reward and, and, and been more on the reward side than on the downside. In fact, most brands that have taken chances, calculated chances that lean into their convictions, have come out ahead. The key is not just knowing what you stand for, but knowing what you stand against. Um, I think brands are really good at determining what they stand for, their brand purpose, but sometimes clients are reticent to, de- to think about what enemy or tension they push up against in the world. For years, Snickers talked about satisfaction, but sales had plateaued. But then they determined that they were against hunger, or rather the, the, the fact that you're not you when you're hungry, that you change, that you turn a little cray-cray or a little hangry. And when they leaned into that creatively, it it was, you know, it, it became a trajectory that they hadn't experienced before that to the point now where they can take their brand name off of their packaging and literally replace it with negative terms. I don't think I've seen a brand be that bold from a packaging perspective in the last couple of years, hands down. Most brands would never remove their product name, but to replace it with a negative and a negative word in replacement is um, I can't think of another brand that's even come close. That's really looked at as a risk. Oh, yeah. See, I don't see that as any different as Coke putting Katie on the can. Like but Coke you guys still have run has Coke of, on their can. You've run out of ideas. It's really the best you could do is this sugar water. There might be a stevia version. There might be a half and half version. You might have wild cherry flavored slim cans of Coke and insert markets tab. Cola. The difference is I think Coke did it because they were trying to get new news. And I think Snickers did it because it leaned into an insight that they had about their brand, which is that you change when you're hungry. 
And you're also kind of intimating that they didn't really have much to lose. If sales have been slipping on the candy bar, if it's kind of, I just remember coming to the United States and that commercial with the peanuts in the hand and would open mm. up and be a Snickers bar. That was the last time it really impressed me on up up until the hangry and the experience. Hangry. Now, now when I go through airports, out. though, I'll sometimes line them up because they're all different and take photos and Instagram them or tweet them because I just think they're funny and I see different ones all the time. I think it was a bold move. I do. I don't. I'm sure there were people there who thought it, there was a lot of risk. There are clients who always think that that there's risk. Every brief that we get says, "I want to gain new people without losing the core." Everyone says, "I want to gain without losing." You know, it also brought to mind the the famous Beyonce video where she mentioned Red Lobster as an inducement mm. for as, as a reward for being an excellent excellent partner in bed and everything. And Red Lobster gladly welcomed that. I can't imagine going into Darden. You know, the parent company was the parent company of Red Lobster mm-hmm. and the Olive Garden. I think it's private equity owned now and saying, I believe and I'm pretty confident that <laughs> if our contacts with Miss Beyonce can get her to invoke um, your brand in the service of sexual reward, that you're going to see huge <laughs> brand awareness that week and everybody's going to crave a cheese biscuit. And I just can't imagine how that would be done in an advertising setting. And so to bring it to you is how do you premeditate that and package that to people? We have to be studying what is topical and what is relevant all the time. It is a constant. And by every client, it changes because it's based on their target audience and every target audience is different. So what is relevant and timely for Land Lakes? might be completely different than what is relevant and timely for Donate Life or Oreo or Geico. And the challenge is you can study with social listening conversations that groups or people are having online and start to see when they build momentum and start to take reasonable bets and predict what will be topical. But you have to be very fast with what you do. So what's probably had the biggest impact on our business is it used to take, you know, 90 days to create a piece of content and put it out in the world and you would shoot it and you'd edit it and you'd um, hire directors and all those things still happen for those TV moments. But we also have to be able to create content and get it out within a matter of hours. And, um, and you know, so if you think of Patagonia as the president stole your land, um, it was a, a tweet that became store postings and, and a whole bunch of other things. But your, your ability to be fast is valuable. And the quality of the impression is the quality of the impression. So let's take – I'll take the Red Lobster example. I'll take the Colin Kaepernick example. If there is a uh, tweet of Donald Trump saying it's detestable what we are doing in light of our, our veterans and the beginning of the NFL season – is that looked at as a net positive for the brand? Because Nike, after all, was only targeting the people who wanted brand conviction and not the 60 or 70-year-old Fox News viewers who are apt to burn their Nike socks. I think that answer would depend on the client. Research would tell you that controversial, purposeful conversation can still be positive net sales. And if it's not sustained negative conversation for long – that's based on a health risk like Chipotle, <laughs> then it can it more often results in positive sales. Mm. The research from Bain and McKinsey both say the most talked about brands outsell their competitive set two and a half times faster. It doesn't say the most liked brands. There are many liked brands that we just don't buy. Sure, Preference is not a guarantee of sales. Relevance and influence 
are better guarantees of sales. Les Binet and Peter Fields did research that showed that fame or buzz or talk value is the most accurate predictor of sales. It doesn't always say positive buzz. That said, very few clients will pay an agency to generate negative publicity for their brand. And I'm thinking, actually, we're both on Twitter, and I can't help but think about Wendy's, which is very uh, happy to go out there and troll McDonald's and say provocative things, you know, never frozen, then why do you guys have freezers or moon pie, mm. which is another one, or, or one that likes to take digs at itself is Steakum in a very kind of ironic way, mm. like, hey, can you help us get some tweets for Steakum over here? It seems like an interesting skunkworks area, both Instagram and Twitter, for brands to take micro risks before they extrapolate it on the best one channels. is Burger King. Tell me about that. Burger King um, does a lot of work that will only exist in the world for a day or two or three. They'll get a cease and desist from McDonald's, but by then the moment has passed and they've won. They've gotten the buzz. They tie themselves to relevant topics. So it might be bullying, it might be net neutrality, it might be Saudi women driving. It might be a horse race. And they make they insert them their, themselves, the brand, the king, the product in conversation so that they are constantly relevant and hijacking conversations versus, say, a CVS or a Patagonia or a Nike that might pick a topic to be a defender of, whether it be health and wellness, the environment, racial equality. Burger King attaches themselves to many topics or moments in the pursuit of relevance. But they take those risks because the timeliness is such that they can they can win relevance for a day or two and, and the legal the legal risk is low. They'll get a cease and desist, but by then it's fine to take it down. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Kristen Cavallo. She is CEO of the Martin Agency, the first female CEO in the storied agency's 52-year history. Um, in the 10 minutes or so that we have left, I'd love to, to get down the kind of the quotidian structural challenges of the industry right now. So you have a pie, you have a, a long history of, of TV and radio and print being fairly stable pies for advertising. And they would follow the cyclical vagaries of things. In a deep recession, you find that companies cut marketing expense. When things are going gangbusters, there's money left on the table if they don't market aggressively. I do wonder now, though, if you look at radio and, and clear channel, iHeartRadio, and, and people kind of tuning out of terrestrial radio generally. TV, as I've said a hundred times, I've whenever I, I guest lecture students, undergraduate students, none of them owns a TV, much less has a cable subscription um, and, and just does not watch primetime TV and the advertising inherent in it. And print, my bailiwick. I mean, my magazine was sold for a song. I cannot imagine, you know, when I first... Moved to New York in 2000, Kristen, all I wanted to do was write for Fortune magazine and be in Time, Time Inc. There was, the, there was this legend of a drink cart and they would come around upon clothes and, um, you know, pour everybody a drink and you would stay late and travel American Airlines business class and everything. And that's all gone. And these magazines are just struggling to maintain any sort of masthead. The upshot, again, is that these dollars are now nickels that we see on YouTube, that we see on Facebook, that those two players hoard and control. So what's left for you guys at the end of the day? It's just a smaller and smaller pie. 
the budgets have shrunk, but I would tell you, I think we can list or cry over specific things like magazine and TV. My the, the truth is people are opting in to culture and news and conversation more than ever before. People are opting in to activism more than ever before. I, I think people are opting into brands and have higher expectation of brands than ever before. The way we access those things has changed, but the the things themselves are still vitally important to commerce, to commercialization, to how we get news, how we get information. I think the tools and the suite of tools that we have at our disposal has now just increased exponentially. So I don't look at it as a world where we have fewer things to work with. I look at it as a world where we have many, many, many more things to work with, many more colors to paint from. It's just a matter of how to use them and when and what are the best ways to reach people. Then in the past, maybe you could reach the majority of people through television. The truth is 25% of people today define TV as looking at their phone as video. So depending on how you actually define TV, it's not necessarily a box that sits upon a But you talk to desk. Your, you talk to your ninth grader, you talk to your college grad. Do they want to see YouTube interstitials? I mean, The Onion, when it writes stories about, you know, finding the the exit ad button. I mean, it's just just so have you ever They want to see entertainment. I think the challenge for agencies or anyone to break through a piece of content or even anyone to make content is to make it as entertaining as humanly possible. People will tell you in focus groups all day long they have no time. And yet 16.9 million people stopped everything to binge watch season two of Stranger Things in a weekend. The truth is they will make time but for the things, things that value ads. them. Without ads. Maybe Ego was a product pay, placement thing. But they pay $9.99 a month. Shouldn't that concern you that the more annoying ads become on something like a YouTube or Vimeo, the more people are going to agree to pay 20 bucks a month to YouTube for an ad-free experience? Annoying things have always bothered me. The challenge is for us not to be annoying so that people opt in like they just did with Nike and talk about your brand. The challenge is on us to be more creative. And that is never annoying. The bars just gets higher. Have you been retained to kind of do outright um, television production? Or are the conversations with people to get into, for example, I'm, I'm thinking of Intel and Daft Punk's album, Random Access Memories, where Intel sponsored a, co- a co-branded thing with Vice to do a docu-series, a documentary about the making of this album. And so I don't know if the record label was Sony or someone saw that as really worthwhile advertising mm in the lead up to that Grammy winning album. Yeah, I think, you know, the Cavemen from Geico became a TV show. We're working with one brand now that makes video games and they want to make a Netflix show out of it. I think our challenge is always to figure out how to get our clients best sides into consumers' eyes and hands in the most and minds in the most entertaining and positively um, impactful way possible. Mm. And everything is at our disposal. TV shows, you know, radio, painting the sides of planes, making tennis shoes. It doesn't matter. It's it's game on for everything. In that way, there's never been a better time to be in advertising than right now. Talk to me about audio, podcasting specifically. You, you read all of these pieces about 
it still remains such a small sliver of the entire advertising opportunity. When you look at commercial radio, which is shrinking, but also print and cable TV, if more younger people are spending quality time listening to podcasts with really bespoke ads, like, mm. let me tell you about my purple mattress. And, you know, this thing <laughs> saves my life. Like, you know, I give a very impassioned pitch for Elwood Thompson's at the top <laughs> of this show because I went to them. Actually, Chris and I went to them. I said, I really like you. I don't know if you have two nickels to rub together, but I'm there all the time and I can speak non-fraudulently about it. Right. Do you find that that resounds or what are clients asking you about those those first person appeals that the content maker makes? I think makes? credibility always matters. So you should find the people who speak credibly and authentically and entertainingly about your product. I think, of course, there's always the consumer now that believes that everything is paid for or not authentic. So I think the ones that do, that can riff off of it, in a, in a genuine way, break through more than those that don't. And I'm mm. sure Elwood Thompson loves the fact that you talk about them. <laughs> no, but it's a, it's a strange thing to do because in a past life, maybe you'd put out a request for purchase or something. Hey, Fidelity, or hey, one of these guys, one of these guys. But this is such, you're sitting here with me. I made a white to the eye appeal to you to come on the show. And this is my baby. And I don't want to be a shill for someone. Mm. And I want people to know that if I am advocating on behalf of something. It's not while I'm holding my sure. nose. And I have... And I don't think consumers today need you to be a mirror and say, go buy my cup of coffee for a buck 99. I think that if you express genuine affection for that brand and you're doing it consistently and you're constantly giving legitimate reasons why it will have an impact on that brand because you're generating buzz and talk value for that brand. I don't think you have to be heavy handed about your admiration. I don't think you have to hold up a mirror today to consumers and say, I'm expecting you to go buy a cup of coffee. I think people should look at advertising and buzz as a window mm. and not a mirror. And I think, therefore, you talking about it is, is the best thing that could happen for them. Close us out in the few minutes we have left with you. What should we look ahead to? Uh, what's not being talked about in this industry? Where else is is Me Too headed? Not that you're a spokeswoman for Me Too, but it's certainly something that you're asked about oh, all the time. It is. I think that you know Me Too is important. It's going to stay important for a while because the truth is, we've as as a society, we've only really determined that we should remove offenders and then implement sexual harassment training. Most companies haven't actually done the hard stuff of changing the culture of their company, and uh, we are we are gunning for that. That is our aim and our ambition, and we're not gonna. We're it's a journey that's never ending, and I think there's a lot more conversation to happen on what does progress actually mean, and how do you create it, and how do you live in that permanent beta? How do you expect constant updates the way we do with our phones, in our business, and and create a sense of constant change and get comfortable with constant change, knowing that as consumers and as humans, we are often resistant to change. But we, it is moving at a faster and faster pace, and it's not slowing down. And it's going to – it's true of our media channels. It's true of our companies that we run. It's true of the way we consume products. And the value of creativity is and, and ingenuity and problem solving is only going to be more and more necessary in all aspects of everything that we do. I think it's all going to blur. I think it's all going to meld. I think 
in many ways, it's like a big candy store. We have so many things to do at our disposal and use, and there's so much research, and there's so much speed happening of, of the pace of change is happening constantly that the the necessities for thinking and acting faster and having a sense of knowing what you stand for and what you stand against are going to be paramount of importance. And that's probably as an industry, what we're not talking enough about is what we stand against. What are we defenders of and what are we um, champions of is, is well is well versed, but what we are intolerant of and what we are what we are standing against is not something we talk about enough. Mm. And I think that's going to be a lot of where you see things go next. In closing, and shortly, I want you to tell me about you, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about that first year of parenthood and paying it forward. Your tandem relationship with your chief creative officer. It's something you mentioned offline to me, which I thought was really poignant. Yeah, when Karen took the job, her main concern was whether or not she could be a good mom. Uh, and and help run this company at the same time. And um, she had moved from California here to Richmond. It doesn't have a, b- a big support system, um, husband, two kids, but they don't have a lot of external, you know, a- additional family support around. And so we pinky swore that we would help each other be great moms first and great leaders second. And um, I have the ability to do some more traveling right now um, certain days of the week. And I said I would do all the traveling for both of us on certain days of the week. And um, and she would pick it up on other days and that we would tag team any or anything or everything that needed to be done. And that if it ever she felt that she was not able to be a good mom, that we would immediately sit down and figure out how to do it differently. I've never had a conversation like that ever in my career, and I loved that we had that conversation. And now whenever anyone comes to us and talks about a struggle with balance, I will say I don't want parenthood to be a reason you leave. Leave because you got a better offer. Leave because you're doubling your salary. Leave because you've changed your mind and you want to do something totally different in your life. I'll never say you have to stay forever, but don't leave because we haven't figured out how to do both things well. We will figure that out. And indeed, wait for it. How's this for a closing statement? Uh, Indeed, alas, alack, Kristen Cavallo, CEO of the Martin Agency, thank you so much for joining us. But why are you still here? You're supposed to pick your daughter up. I am. I've got to go. Thank you so much. It was really kind of you to stop Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us and love us on NPR One. It's a great app. And on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. We are on Twitter at FullDRadio and Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. We are brand ambassadors banking five cents per million listens of earned media. Make sure to opt in at FullDRadio.com. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Mm